welcome back to Student Apologetics. You can come to join us today to have Dr. Cy Dart. He's a PhD biochemist, and he wrote the award-winning book, The Work of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. We're talking about evolution and Christianity today. So, Cy, welcome. How are you? Well, thanks for having me back. Yeah, so I think this is Cy's third time maybe on the channel. We've done different conversations related to, like, biology or Christianity and Cy's journey and stuff. So, super pumped for today about evolution and Christianity and all these big questions. So, before we get into the heavy stuff, Cy, can you just talk a little bit about, like, who you are and what you do? Okay. Uh, I'm a retired scientist. I was in uh, academic scientific research and uh, environmental health and uh, toxicology, population genetics, areas, other areas like that for about 30 years. Uh, then I worked at the NIH as, as an administrator for about six years, and then I retired. Uh, I was brought up uh, as an atheist. I lived in an atheist household for my childhood and early early adult. I remained an atheist until my mid-40s when I began wondering uh, through because of the science I was learning and uh, became more of an agnostic and finally came to Jesus later in life uh, and was uh, baptized in my 60s. Um, and I've written a book, uh, which you mentioned, uh, I'll just say it again. It's called The Works of His Hands, An Atheist Journey from, uh, sorry, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And uh, that book describes my journey and also talks about how science helped me break through the materialist atheist worldview that I had. And eventually God led me to, to Christian faith. Uh, so that's, and, uh, and that, since I retired, I've been basically uh, working in that area of Christianity and science. And I'm the editor-in-chief uh, of the uh, a quarterly online magazine called God and Nature, which is put out by the American Scientific Affiliation. Uh, that's an organization of Christians in the sciences. And uh, I've done some other things uh, related to science and faith, in addition to the book and doing a lot of interviews. Uh, I've given some talks, things like that, written a few articles, and I'm going to keep doing that. So much great stuff, Cy. So I think it'd be helpful when we look before we get into like looking at like evolution and how it relates to like Christianity, just sharing a little bit of like your journey, your story. Obviously, like I've had you on before and you've shared it more, probably more detail than we'll go into today. But I think it's helpful with when we're thinking about these things because I think for a lot of Christians, they discover evolution after they become like they were Christians or things like this. But for you, it's the opposite. Um, and you were working in fields related to evolution and then you come to Christianity. So just want to share a little bit of your story and your journey to faith. Yeah, I, I, um, as I said, I'll just go into a little bit. It, the details are all in the book, and I think a lot of people have heard them uh, before. But I, uh, you know, I, I started out with this very materialistic view, and it was science itself that kind of pushed that out of my, or at least gave me a lot of uh, reasons to doubt the idea of materialism, including things like quantum mechanics and the new physics in general. And as I was studying biology or biochemistry, I began seeing the incredible complexity of life, which is way beyond what most people realize is the case. And uh, I just found that amazing and overwhelming. And I, and I had to ask, how did that happen? And why is that the case? And it didn't bring me to faith, I, I, but I, I, did, I stopped ruling out the possibility of a divine presence, a creator, et cetera. 
before I had said, no, 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 that's impossible. Sky Daddy, all the typical stuff you always hear from atheists. I had all of that. But I dropped that, and then I and then I slowly uh, began becoming interested in, in Christian Christianity, uh, reading the Gospels, hearing about Jesus, went to church a couple of times. Uh, again, all of this is complex but detailed in the book. And eventually, I did have some direct experiences with the Holy Spirit. What after one of the last one of which uh, I realized that I was a believer and, and have been ever since. And uh, and then I didn't know what to do with that because I I didn't know anyone else at the time yeah. who was uh, you know a, a scientist and a Christian. There were some I just didn't know that they were, and um, who I knew. And then and then I read Francis Collins' book, The Language of God, and I saw that there were others. I joined Biologos. I joined the ASA, uh, and I saw there were a lot of people in who were scientists and also Christians. And, and that, uh, you know, at first I thought, well, if I become a Christian, I'll have to give up my, my scientific worldview. I'll have to say evolution is not true and be a young earth creationist. I really had no idea. And then I found out that in fact, uh, that's not the case. There are, <laughs> there are thousands and thousands of Christians who accept mainstream science, including evolution. And the whole Catholic church does that many Protestant denominations, except evolution, in fact, most of them. And, uh, you know, it, there, there are a group of people who don't, uh, of Christians who don't. I'm good friends with many of them. And, uh, you know, we don't agree on that. But I, I haven't met anyone yet. And I, I had a debate with Kent Hovind, who's a pretty extreme young earth creationist. But even he agreed uh, that uh, this is not a salvation issue. I mean, what counts for us as Christians is, the confession that Jesus Christ, you know, was crucified, rose from the dead, and is our Lord and Savior, and that uh, that makes us Christians. And whether we, and we know that God created everything, created the universe, created life, created us human beings. How He did so is up for debate, and uh, you know, it's not stated in the Bible explicitly. Uh, and I think we have the. God gave us the gifts of intellect, the gift of science. Uh, the, the original Western Christians were all scientists. And, um, and and with that, with those gifts from the Lord, we I think we are commanded to try to understand how the natural world works and, and how God's creation works. And that's what that's what all the original Christians, I mean, Pasteur and Boyle and uh uh, Faraday and all the all those scientists who were pioneering physics and biology and chemistry, um, they all had the same view. They all had the the idea that they were doing exploration to understand how God's universe worked and why it was orderly uh, and mm -hmm. why you know why it was something that we could understand. And I think that, uh, you know, many, there are many, many of us who are following in those footsteps. And, uh, you know, uh, Francis Collins is well known by many people, but there are many others as well who are not as well known. So um, I, I think that's, you know, a message that would, is important. And, and my main goal, and I, I think I've said this to you before, Zach, my main goal is to, to be very specific, is to reassure any 
young Christian who might be, who might have grown up in the church, not like me, but, you know, who grew up in the church and took Christian faith as a, as a given and then got to college or whatever and was told that, you know, you can't be a Christian and study science at the same time because they, they, they don't agree. They're in conflict. And that conflict thesis is what I'm fighting against all the time. I, it, that's the main thing that I think has to be dispelled. Uh, it's not true that you have to choose one or the other. There's no dichotomy. That's super helpful, Sai. And like, I think like even with my own story, like growing up, um, there are a lot of people that have gave me the impression that like as a Christian, like growing up, I'm gonna have to go to um, some secular university. I'm gonna have to go like fight the evolutionary biology professor and like show them right. that like like this is where my faith is on the line. It's not on the it's not just on the cross, but it's also at, like the field of evolutionary biology. Right. And right. like sim similar to you, like I share this intuition of like what seems like it's open, like it's an open discussion here. Like I personally, like, I just don't know like really any of the science of evolution. So I'm like, I don't know what to believe with regards to it. But like theologically, right. like I don't have this like presupposition where I'm like, well, this just can't be, this can't fit with like the biblical data. Cause I mean, I think it can. Um, and it seems like a lot of people are like you talked about, so like even a lot of younger creationists are willing to say like, you can be a Christian and believe in evolution. It's just, you know, right. looking at um, and trying to reason to like, what's the truth. So, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, as I said, I have friends who are, who are scientists, biochemists, young earth creationists, and we just don't talk about that. <laughs> we talk about yeah. other things. Uh, we don't talk about evolution that much. And, uh, you know, and, and there are people, I mean, I had a, 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 a really very interesting, very short uh, conversation with Steve Meyer from the Discovery Institute. He was on a he was giving a talk and, and I was able to ask a question and I really liked his answer. I, I said, you know, the origin of life is, is not related to evolution, which of course he agreed with and most people agree with that. Uh, so I said, is it, is it necessary when you want to talk about God's creation, do you have to talk about evolution or can you just rely mostly on, you know, I didn't actually say it this way, but it's something like that. Or can you just rely on the origin of life? And he admitted, uh, I thought it was very, uh, very nice. He, he said, well, you know, it doesn't have to be on evolution. It could, there's plenty to say on the, on the origin of life that, you know, points to a creator and a designer. So you're not giving up on the idea of a designer or, or an intelligent you know, God or creator, or whatever, by accepting evolution, because that that's not all there is. And and I think I think that's a very important uh, point uh, that that I think to tell you the honest truth, I think that in some time, maybe a few years or maybe more than a few years, evolution will no longer be a debate because the science is so strong. It's really hard to argue against it. And and also it doesn't have any theological impact. <laughs> it doesn't really matter whether or not animals sprang out of the earth already formed and then went on the ark and later evolved into all the animals we see today because that's what AIG is now saying. Answers in Genesis holds to evolution, only a very rapid evolution and starting at a much lower level in other words so there was a cat kind created a dog kind all these other kinds and like at the at the level of order or whatever and after the flood when they got off the ark they 
spread throughout the world and evolved by natural selection, the regular mm -hmm. mechanism of, of evolution. And, and that's what young earth creation is, not all of them, but many of them do believe. So they're even accepting some kind of evolution. And everybody I know of accepts microevolution, which is a form of evolution. It involves natural selection. It involves mutation and, and you know, change. And so I don't, I don't think, you know, this evolution is going to remain an issue forever. It's going to simply go away. Uh, and, and the more we're learning about biology, the more we're learning about science in every field, the more we see the hand of God. That's what I feel. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. when people say, well, there's got to be a natural explanation. The answer is, of course, there's a natural explanation. There always is, because nature was created by God. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, you know, when, when people used to think that thunder was, was God's, you know, throwing bolts down or lightning was some magic by God, and then they discovered it had to do with atmospheric, uh, you know, conditions, that didn't take away anything from God as the creator. Who created yeah. the atmosphere, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, so, yeah. you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think, I may, I may be getting ahead of myself here because we want to talk about this a little more on evolution, but I, I don't think that evolution is a serious or long-term argument. And anyone who says now, in either direction, if people say, well, if you hold to evolution, you're, you're going against the Bible and you're going against Jesus, that's nonsense. And at the same time, anybody who says, well, if you say you believe in God, then you're denying evolution and you can't be a scientist, that's also absurd. These things just are, are untrue. They're, they're both mythological and false. I think it's helpful in just like pointing people towards people like William Lane Craig's new book on Adam, or you could look at like Ben Stanhope or John Walton. There's a lot of different scholars, um, right. Christian evangelical or scholars that accept evolution and have different interpretations of Genesis. But we're not going to be focusing too much on Genesis here today. Um, looking at more like evolution and like what it is and like even like the idea of like teleology yeah. of evolution. So just to start off with looking at evolution side, first, like in a broad sense, when we're talking about evolution, like we will for the next like 30, 40 minutes, what do we mean by evolution? Okay, that's a good question. So, and, and I, I'm glad you asked that because a lot of people who say they're against evolution really are not talking about evolution when they say they're <laughs> against it. Uh, and so I, I, I have a, a whole video on my, on my video channel called What Evolution Is Not. And that's really important. I think I have a blog post on that as well. It's really important because there's so many things that people think evolution says, which it doesn't say at all. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it doesn't say that one animal can turn into another animal. No, no goat can turn into a sheep. No, <laughs> you know, no cat can turn into a dog. And, and in fact, animals always give birth to the same kind of animal that they are and that's fundamental for evolution to work <laughs> okay so it, you know it if an anti-evolutionist says well i don't think you know we came from monkeys you're right we didn't come from monkeys we came from our parents who were human and they came from their parents who were human so that's what, so that's one of the important things that evolution does not say so what does it say where where do all these things come from hmm. and uh the, the answer is, and again, I have this on a video uh, with pictures, which is easy to see, but 
you know what what happens with evolution is it's basically all evolution is basically microevolution which most people agree works and and then in very rare cases you have some changes which are more than very small little changes that go on in the genome but what's critical to understand how evolution works is to think of it as a population of animals which are all different because mm -hmm. all animals are different right from each other they're not clones we're not clones except for identical twins that's the only example of clones and people all, we always have differences in our genes, and that's and that's important. Uh, these these differences in the genes are called alleles, and they occur by mutations of various kinds. And most of those different alleles have no effect on the way people live or the way animals live. A few of them are, are very bad. They a lot of them are very bad. They they can kill the the fetus before birth, or they don't. They just never allow you know the fetus to even begin because they're those uh, mutations really are are lethal, uh, and then there are and then there are most of them have no effect at all, and then there are very few that may actually have a positive effect. But it doesn't mean that they have a positive effect right away. So in other words, it doesn't mean that you get a mutation and that and that child that grows up that is born with that mutation is suddenly better mm. than everything else. No, all it does is, is it, increases, it increases the variation within the population. Now, let's say you have, for example, a population of birds, and they're all pretty much the same. Uh, and oh, oh, let's not do birds. Let's do, um, let's say, I don't know, bears, something like that. And they're living in a very nice environment, and they're all the same, but there's some variation. Some of them have slightly longer hair than others which means they're a little warmer than others. And if the temperature now, let's say thousands of years after this mutation began to spread a little bit, if, this, if the temperature suddenly gets colder, those bears with the longer hair will do better. They'll be warmer. And very slowly, those bears will be more successful. This is natural selection. And they will be able to reproduce more and live longer, et cetera, et cetera. And pretty soon, well, within a few thousand years or so, all the bears in that area will have longer hair. But that may not be true for all the bears in the world because there may be another population of bears which is still living in a, in a warm climate. And for them, long hair is not good. You get they overheat. So that population of bears will have shorter hair. And if those two populations are separated by a lot, by let's say by an ocean or a mountain range, they can't get together, they can't interbreed, they cannot mix. Those two populations of bears or whatever animal they are will just undergo, undergo normal changes at, within the population. So maybe the one population will will get uh, will change the shape of their nose. Maybe another population will have better eyesight. And that's only going to happen in one of the two populations, not the other one, because they're separated. They can't intermix. And so after a very long period of time, you're not going to have bears in either of those two populations. They're going to each of them will have changed, but separate from each other. Their common ancestor was the original bear. 
And the way I illustrated is lions and tigers. Okay, they let's say they both came. Originally, there was an animal that was half lion, half tiger. You wouldn't call it that. You'd just say there was an animal that looked like a a lion or a tiger or some kind of cat. Mm-hmm. And, and and this is this the, the creation uh, museum uh, in where the ark is has um, has exhibits of these early cat kinds. And they look like, you know, they look like some mix of a, of a leopard, a lion, and a tiger. And when that population spreads out and is separated, one of the populations, one of the subpopulations, will change. It'll get stripes, and it'll start looking like a tiger. And the other population, just by chance, will get, you know, a mane. The males will have a mane, on a lot of hair on their head, and that'll begin, begin looking like a lion. And so pretty soon, not pretty soon, but after after evolutionary time, you yeah. don't have the original guys anymore. You don't, in neither population has those original, whatever you call them, ligers or trions or whatever the original was. Now you have lions and tigers, two separate species. That's evolution. Nothing magical. It's, it's just a natural event that occurs whenever you have a population that is isolated you have different variations that give different selective advantages in different environments. And that happens, and we, we, we see it happen all the time. In other words, microevolution and macroevolution are not totally distinct. Now, having said all that, I will say that there are some changes that occur during evolutionary history which are hard to explain. Mm-hmm. They require... Um, you know, they require really strange kinds or lots of different kinds of mutations that are not easily explainable as a slow, gradual development. Because one of the things in Darwin's theory is that there's a continuous, gradual change. That's not always the case. And uh, Stephen Jay Gould talked about uh, punctuated equilibrium, where he said, most of the time, evolution is very slow and very gradual, but every now and then you get an amazing change. For example, vertebrates, okay? How did vertebrates arise? You had all these invertebrates, jellyfish and insects and all these, no backbone. And then all of a sudden you get these vertebrates, which is a completely different body plan. Where did all, where did all that come from? You have, you have limbs, you have arms and legs, you have a backbone. You know, all the vertebrates look pretty similar from fish to us. You know, they have a, a similar kind of body plan shape when you compare mm-hmm. it to, you know, mollusks or lobsters or <laughs> or yeah. you know, all the all the invertebrates that you can think of, worms and all that. And and so where did that how did all that happen? And and it turns out for the beginning of vertebrates, it was a mutation, but it was an extremely unusual, rare kind of mutation called whole genome duplication. And what happened was some poor lobster or whatever, I don't know who it was, maybe it was a, an ant, but somewhere there was a mutation which resulted in the entire genome being duplicated. Hmm. And when that happens, it allows for a gigantic amount of further mutations to occur because none of them are going to be lethal. And the reason they're not lethal is because you have another copy right there. So you have a duplication of the genome so that every gene is duplicated. So if you mutate one of those genes and it doesn't go well, it doesn't matter. You're not going to die. 
because you've got the other gene working. And so with the whole genome duplication, it's like you're suddenly allowed to, to experiment tremendously. And there is evidence that there was a whole genome duplication. I can't go into the details, but that there was that event that occurred at the beginning of vertebrates. And that's mm -hmm. why this amazing change was able to develop. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I don't know. I've said a lot. <laughs> I talked a lot. Yeah. The thing to understand about evolution is it, it, it's not magical. There, there, there definitely are problems that we are still working to understand. Uh, it's not all random mutation. Uh, there's a lot of complex interaction with the environment, which we're just learning about. And one of the fascinating things to me is that we are, you mentioned teleology. Uh, I happen to believe that teleology and agency are critical in evolution. And that is a view that I didn't make up. Uh, James Shapiro and Dennis Noble, who are both very well-recognized scientists and are not Christians, uh, have proposed this, uh, that there is purpose uh, in biology, and that includes in evolution. And there's agency because many organisms, including bacteria, are able to help themselves get out of tough situations by increasing their, their mutagenic rate. And that way they, they evolve, they increase evolution. And I, I'm actually working on that uh, using some mathematical modeling. So, but they've done, people have done experiments. A woman named Susan Rosenberg has done some fascinating uh, work on, um, on, uh, what's called hypermutation, which allows for very rapid uh, evolution when, when an organism is in trouble. If, if a bacteria, for example, is hit with, a, with an antibiotic, which is poison for them, most of them will die. But one or two of them may, they'll all go into this hypermutation mode because they're basically what they're saying is, well, we're going to die anyway. We might as well mutate as much as we can. Yeah. And, and some of the, a small number of those mutations will be helpful, will maybe do something that will block the, the antibiotic, and those survivors will then go on and, and continue to breed. So uh, this is, this is uh, organisms helping themselves evolve. So the idea that evolution is purely a random chance accident event, that's not, that's not really the current, I mean, Lots of people still feel that way, but people who are actually working in the field are beginning to see it doesn't, doesn't explain everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really great transition side because we've talked about so far um, like what evolution is and like is it like fundamentally opposed to like Christianity? So we've got we've covered that. So now I think it'd be helpful to talk about like is evolution really random? Because um, you've been hitting at this side. Like, do you want to kind of get into uh, why you think that there's good reason to think there may actually be like agency behind evolution? Yeah. I mean, there's a huge amount of scientific evidence now, a lot of it from uh, Simon Conway Mars, who is a Christian and, and who I've met, uh, who is a brilliant guy. And he has shown what's called convergence. In other words, it, it, surprisingly enough, and if you think about it, everybody knows this, but he really did a study on it. Uh, the ability to have wings and to fly evolved in mammals, in insects, 
in fish, in uh, birds, in reptiles, everywhere. And all of these are unrelated to each other. So there was several times when wings and flying evolved. And that's true for, I think, I don't know how many, I think he has over a hundred examples, oh, maybe way more than that, uh, mm -hmm. hundreds of examples of this kind of convergence. And what that shows is that the old idea that evolution can come up with anything is not true. There are things evolution never does, and there are things it always does. And so these, this is, these are constraints, and, it, and it's a big blow to the idea of randomness and accident. There may be some degree of randomness in mutations, but the results are not random at all. The results of evolution have to do with natural selection, which is very non-random. Natural selection chooses the way we choose, you know, who will do better and who won't. And the other thing that's very important, which is the thing that I was working on, I still am working on, and I published about already, is that when people talk about evolution, they always forget one of the most important things. The, the two things that people talk about with evolution are mutations, right? Changes in the genes and natural selection. But what they forget is that you don't get evolution unless you have very accurate, faithful, high fidelity replication. Hmm. Okay. So, and there's where I talk about the bird example. If, if a bird has a mutation, which gives it much better eyesight, that bird is going to do great, right? Natural selection is going to really help that bird out. Mm -hmm. But if his kids don't inherit that mutation, there's no evolution because he did great. He had a great life, ate everything he could find. But the kids are just like everyone else. So that mm -hmm. mutation has to get passed on to the offspring. And that's mm -hmm. true from the beginning of life. Without that accurate, highly accurate replication system, you can't have evolution. And how do you get that? To get the accurate replication system, you have to be able to replicate not just the DNA or RNA, you have to be able to replicate all the enzymes. And that's done by the system that's called translation, protein synthesis, which is amazingly complex. In modern life, all of modern life, it's accurate to 99.9999%. And if it's much less accurate than that, you would end up not only not transferring positive mutations, you would end up dying because <laughs> all these important enzymes wouldn't be working. So there's a lower limit to how, and, and so the question then becomes, well, that very complex system of making proteins, did that evolve? How did it evolve? Because you need those proteins to make evolution work. You need all that, you need that entire, all the, everything in that system of protein synthesis, you need to allow for evolution because evolution requires accurate replication. Hmm. Hmm. That's so, so interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I just because like, just thinking about like this evolution, it's just so interesting to think about. Like one example of convergence, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I've heard about is like, we look at like the eyes of humans compared to the right. eyes of octopuses. So if you right. go back, um, like our last common ancestor, if you accept that kind of story, um, would be like 
270 or 300 million years ago, something crazy, like very far away. But then like humans and octopuses independently have these like very similar eyes with like retinas, yeah. retinas and irises. Like, it's just like, I think convergence is really interesting um, when we're yeah. thinking about like evolution. It's very important. And, and what it shows is that there are, again, it's not random. There is mm -hmm. a direction that evolution tends to take when it comes to vision. You got different kinds of eyes, but yeah, the octopus somehow evolved an eye that's almost identical to the vertebrate eye, to the to the mammalian eye. And that, by chance, that would never happen. Mm -hmm. So there are some laws we don't yet know that govern evolution. And, you know, when we talk about early evolution, what I was just talking about before, we don't know how it is that that early, early proto cells were able to replicate themselves perfectly to get to the point where evolution can start. So, you know, you could say that there, maybe the hand of the creator is there at the origin of life and was somehow allowed for this to, to occur, in which case evolution is actually, and this will sound funny to many people, but ev evolution may actually turn out to be an argument for God. <laughs> this is uh, one of these things I've been, yeah. I was going to say, and in the future, it may only be atheists who deny the reality of evolution. That would be very funny, but it's not impossible. <laughs> it's interesting because, like, thinking about this, like, um, like looking at like convergence of these other like theological like features of evolution. Like, if evolution is like purely random, is like um, someone like Darwin or Stephen Jay Gould suggested, like things like convergence is not what you'd expect at all with exactly. regards to evolution. Exactly. Whereas, like, if we have a theistic story, we have a God who's um, created this process or guiding this process, like however you want to like spell that out, like something like convergence is exactly what you'd expect um, if God was like using evolution, which is why I find this like just right. so interesting to think about. So, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned Stephen Jay Gould and he, his famous quote is if you wound the, uh, the clock backwards in time and set it up again, you'd get something completely different. Mm -hmm. But Conway Morris has shown, no, <laughs> you would still <laughs> have you would still have eyes you may you know we may be slightly different than we are and and octopuses may have you know 10 legs instead of eight or whatever but mm -hmm. uh you know you're still going to get creatures that fly you're still going to get creatures that have sonar and creatures that have hearing you know, and we don't know uh, the laws that govern that, but uh, I think there's a, it's a very exciting field, both in science and for scientists who follow either Christianity or, or, or just God, because if you believe God is the creator and you want to understand biology, what better than to study evolution, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you, you may get an answer. Yeah, this is like one of these things where like I'm graduating in May, but one of my re regrets is like, oh, if I was doing something else, like if I wasn't studying what I am now, like, oh, I want to study like biology or paleontology or like get into this field of like trying to understand evolutionary biology because it's so, so fascinating. Um, just learning about these oh, things. It's not too late. You're a young guy. You can do <laughs> That's both. <true. laughs> we'll see. There's hopefully a lot of time left. So we'll see where everything. Yeah, you yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, you know. There's only one bad thing about biology. Uh, it's really complex. <laughs> it's really, it's yeah. hard. You just have to know a lot of stuff. And mm -hmm. and uh, but you know if it's if it's exciting to you, it's not that hard to learn. Yeah. And you know you don't have to be a brilliant student. I mean, I was I was not a very good student, and you know I kind of squeaked by even through graduate school. But 
the nice thing about being a scientist is once you're done and you got all you, you get your degrees, you can pretty much do what you want, especially if you, you know, if you get a that kind of a job, if you get you get to academia. Uh, and and there's so much you can do, you know, so much to look at. And it's just it's just fun. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, now, I, I did that without being a Christian, without having any religious interest at all when I was starting out. But uh, as when I did become a Christian, it, it what it did was it really, among the many things it did, was it really reinforced my my faith. And the faith really interacted well with my scientific curiosity because, mm. uh, you know, so I, I think it's just the opposite of the mythology that these things are in conflict. They're actually very, very well suited to each other. Mm -hmm. I think it's really like there's only this conflict if you give these like specific interpretation of Genesis. Like if you have these certain interpretations as a Christian, um, then sure, it's going to be a conflict. But then it's the question of like, how do you know your interpretations are right? Because there's a lot of competing right. views and there's a lot of things in the market. So, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, sorry. And just let me add one last thing to that because that's a good comment, Zach. But I just want to add that the idea that somebody follows the literal words of Scripture is nonsense. Mm -hmm. Nobody, nobody follows the literal words of Scripture. First of all, the literal words of Scripture were written in Hebrew, translated and then translated and then translated and that's why we have so many versions. And in fact, my wife and I teaching Sunday school, and we just were talking about that to the kids. There's so many versions because there's so many different ways to translate. And everybody interprets scripture. If you look up answers in Genesis and ask a tough question and find their answers, their answers are fine, but they all involve interpretation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot take, there are sections of the Bible you simply cannot take literally. <laughs> There's a great book by Ben Stanhope on this exact topic where he um, tries to show like like the interpretation that some people like younger people bring forward is actually might just be like unbiblical and out of context with like what the right. scriptures are trying to say, which I mean, I'm not a exegist of Hebrew scripture, but I do think there's a lot of debate right. that can be had here. So we talked about like convergence side. Is there anything else um, you want to talk about here? Because we have a few minutes left before we go to a little bit of Q&A if there's questions. And if there's not, we'll just keep going for a little bit more. Um, we'll be done in about 15-ish minutes. Um, is there any other areas of, like where we might see like teleology and evolution that you might want to talk about here? Well, I I think the first I think I think what's important to try to do is is for people to uh, certainly biologists to understand that even if you're not religious, don't believe in God. You're not going to make much more progress in understanding the really tough questions in biology without a change in paradigm. It's the kind of change we're going to we're going to need the kind of change that we saw in physics when when you know Planck and Einstein came up with quantum theory and relativity. We're going to need a whole new way of looking at things, mm -hmm. and that's what Dennis Noble is saying. And again, he's not a Christian, and James Shapiro and many others in the new wave, it's called, or the extended evolutionary synthesis. And what they're saying is, you know, we have to change this paradigm of random mutation and natural selection, and that's it. And it's all very simple, and that and explains everything. No, and it, that's not true. And and my own belief is, and again, this is also shared by Noble and Shapiro and others, is that we need to bring back some things that were thrown out of biology prematurely, and that includes those two areas, teleology, in other words, there is purpose. 
you can't deny purpose in biology. I mean, we do things for a purpose. So do foxes. So do squirrels. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. squirrels near my house throw, throw nuts down on us because, you know, we're bothering them and they want to break the nuts after they hit our heads. Uh, they do it for a reason, <laughs> you know, even if we don't like it. And every, every animal has a reason and a purpose and everything alive does. And the other thing we need to bring back is the idea of agency, that agency counts. It's not, it's not random events all based on chemical and physical laws that are easy. That's not what life is. Life doesn't work that way. You know, animals decide to do things, <laughs> literally like us and, and other animals do too. And even bacteria make decisions based on, you know, their surroundings and they don't use their brains because they don't have any, but they use chemical signals and they do all kinds and they, and they cause hypermutations so that they can survive. I mean, this is all agency. And when we start talking about teleology and agency as, as a real scientific issue, it's not that far to go from there to say, well, what was the agency and purpose before there was life? And the answer, of course, we know is that was that was all God. Now, we don't have to include that in our scientific view because God is not a scientific issue. But as Christians, we can feel find comfort in the idea, just as we did when it turned out that the universe actually is 14.8 billion years old and didn't exist forever. Okay, mm -hmm. that was the that was discovered by science, and it was completely compatible with Genesis, other than the age, which doesn't matter. Uh, but the fact that the universe began, you know, that was that was in the Bible before scientists realized it was true, and you know that can happen in biology as well. But we need to be able to to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. I'll stop. Yeah, no, that's so interesting, Sai, and I'm so grateful for um, everything you're sharing here because I think it's so helpful to like really just talk and understand evolution, especially like hearing from Christians um, who accept evolution, because I think especially like in America, there's this big stigma. Um, and that's why it's just worth talking about this thing and questions related to this. So uh, we're probably going to wrap up here soon. Side, do you have anything else you want to talk about with regards to like evolution or Christianity or just like anything along these lines that we've been talking about today? Well, I'll just, I could just end with a, a comment that I've, that I've made many times, if you're a Christian and you're interested in science, I would say, what I say to you is great, you know, read the Bible and study science. Mm -hmm. Do both. Yeah. I think that's super well put, Sai. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for your time. Is there, how can people like follow you, connect with oh. you, things like that? Mm -hmm. My, so I'm on Twitter and Facebook, uh, pretty active on Twitter. And I have a website, which is very easy. It's just simply cygart.com. Cygart is one word. And that website has everything more or less up to date that I, if, if you want to know anything about my scientific career, it's all there. I have a pretty large CV. And if you want to know anything about what I've been doing more recently, that's there too with links. Mm. Cygart.com. And, uh, and, and please feel free. And I always say this to everybody, if you want to, you know, discuss anything with me, uh, talk, ask a question, share a prayer, just, uh, you know, join, follow me on Twitter and send me a, a DM. Mm. I almost always answer DMs. You answered my DMs because that's how you're on the show. So here we are. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you, of course, but now that I, 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 when I say almost, I, 
it, it's pretty much 98%, 99.9%, I answer. It's only it's only when people are obviously scamming or spamming or whatever. Then I mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm just so grateful for your time and your expertise and your story and just like how the Lord used you uh, in your progress and just like being a light and like looking at this question. I'm just so grateful for your time. Encourage everyone to check Sai out. You can do that. Uh, he described it and there's a link down below. So you can follow Sai on Twitter. There's a link and check out SciArt. And always, if you're new here, I always encourage you to subscribe to our channel, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you value our content, if you enjoy it, consider becoming a member or patron. If you're listening to YouTube, press the join button right now for as little as dollar a month or patron, um, patreon.com. Your support means a lot. But Sai, thank you so much for your time. So, so grateful. And I hope you have a good rest of your night. You too. Take care of that. Bye-bye. And thank you everyone for tuning in to Pseudonym and Jack FM and Matt Burns and everyone else. Have a good one and God bless.